ain't got good. Take your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 1, please. Before we do anything else, let's just go to the Lord in prayer tonight. Father God, we do love you. Thank you so much, Lord, for redeeming love. It's made a difference in my heart and life. Lord, I'm so thankful tonight for your grace and mercy that's been made real to me. Because of, by and through, the cross of you, Lord Jesus, we praise you. Thank you, Lord, tonight for the truth of your word. Holy Spirit, I'm asking you to help me make much of Jesus tonight. And Lord, we want to lift him up above everything else. In Jesus' mighty name we do pray. Amen. Revelation chapter 1 is what we're going to look at again this evening. We began the first chapter of the book of Revelation last week. Um, there's a chapter division at verse number 8. Um, 1 through 8, we see the introduction of this blessed book, this powerful book, this prophetic book um, that John was given to write um, by the Lord Jesus himself. And so uh, if you remember, we looked last week at the title, Revelation, what that means to us. We looked at the testimony of John, uh, this great apostle who wrote several books in the New Testament, the Gospel of John, the Epistles of John, uh, the Revelation um, that was given to John by Jesus that we're studying now. Then we saw the Trinity described, and I, that just bless, blesses my heart every time I think about it. Do you know we see the Trinity on the pages of Scripture in Genesis chapter 1, the first chapter of the first book uh, in the Bible, and then we look all the way over at the last book in the first chapter of the book of Revelation, and we see the Trinity again. Uh, it's all about what God has done through all 66 books. Can you say amen to that? We praise God for it. Uh, we also looked at the triumphant Jesus, and tonight we're going to do the same thing. We're just going to keep uh, looking at Jesus here on the pages of Scripture. Now, you remember me telling you last week, you can't have the prophecy without the person. How many of you know the prophecy means nothing without the person of Jesus? That's what we really got to get a hold of, who he is, um, what this is truly all about. So I struggle with the title tonight. I was going to entitle it John and Jesus because that's really what we're going to be talking about. Uh, we're going to be looking at John, uh, and we're certainly going to be looking at Jesus. But then I thought about the servant and the Savior, John being the servant uh, of Lord Jesus, the Savior of the world. We're going to see him tonight, the glorified Savior, the glorified Jesus, uh, right here in the first chapter of the book of Revelation. Now let's look at verses 9 through 20. I'm going to read that for you. Then we're going to come back and look at some of this. It says, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation... And in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Don't miss that. Look at verse 10. I was in the spirit of the Lord on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write it in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. Verse 14. His head and his hairs were like that uh, of white wool, white as snow. 
and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they were burned in a furnace, and his voice as of the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of the mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was that uh, was as the sun shineth in his strength. Look at verse 17. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, I love this, Fear not, fear not. I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. If you believe it, say amen. Amen. Amen and have uh, the keys of of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou uh, sawest in my right hand, the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven candlesticks which thou seest are the seven churches. Now let's look back at verse number 9 just a moment. And the first thing that I want you to see tonight is the first thing he speaks of in the ninth verse. The first thing we want to notice is the persecution of John. Look what he says. He says, I, John, who also am your brother. And he says something that we need to take note of. And companion in tribulation. Now folks, when John says tribulation here, I think it's important that we define our terms. Now, how many of you understand, we all know that in the book of Revelation, you are going to see outlined on the pages of Scripture what will take place during the seven years of the Great Tribulation. We all know that. We're going to see that as we get on into the book of Revelation. But when John speaks of tribulation here uh, in the ninth verse, he's not speaking of the Great Tribulation. There's a big difference. Now, when John speaks of the Great Tribulation, you're going to see as we study this, he sees it from the vantage point of heaven above. Amen? John sees it after being called up to heaven in the Spirit. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. After he's called up to heaven in the Spirit, listen to me now, he looks down upon the earth and he sees what's going to take place during the seven years of the Great Tribulation. Now, the tribulation he's speaking of here is not the Great Tribulation, but the tribulation that we all face as believers. How many of you know, John understood what we must understand, that we are not immune from tribulation, from trouble, from trial, or from persecution, simply because we are the children of God. None of us are. Jesus, if you remember in John chapter 16, verse 33, it's a lot of people's favorite verse, and, and, and rightly so. He said in John 16, 33, in this world you shall have tribulation. Not you might have tribulation, or you could have tribulation, or maybe it's going to happen. He said you're going to have tribulation. You're going to have troubles. You're going to have trials. You're going to go through even persecution as the people of God. Now I know the health and wealth, blab it and glam it, name it and claim it. They're not going to tell you that stuff, but it's the truth according to what scripture says. Now I know what a lot of people say, and I agree with them partly. They'll say things like this. Well, I'll tell you what, as long as you're walking in obedience, you can expect God's blessing. And that is true. That's absolutely true. But then they say stuff like this. If you go outside of what God, of the way God wants you to go, if you walk in disobedience, if you go wayward from the things of God, um, that God will allow troubles and trials and tribulations into your life to get you back to where you need to be. And I'm going to tell you this, I'll agree with part, that partly. There's no doubt about that. 
How many of you understand God chastises those he loves? The Bible teaches in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse number 6, it says that God deals with us as with sons and daughters. And and whom the Lord loves, the Bible says, he chasteneth. And so if we go wayward, if we walk in disobedience, if we go against what God and the direction that God is leading us throughout our life according to the word of God, I can promise you this, he will do what's necessary to get his children back to where they need to be. And so from time to time we do face tribulation, trials, and troubles because we do our own thing and don't listen to what God has for our lives. We walk in disobedience instead of being obedient to the God who loves us. But how many of you understand that's not always the case? As a matter of fact, I see the life of John, and John is not walking in disobedience and thereby being persecuted or falling into tribulation. He's walking in complete obedience. I mean, he's just doing what he's been saved to do. He's just doing what he's been called to do. He's faithful to the preaching of the gospel. He's faithful to the leadership that he has in the church. He's faithful in being what Jesus has called him to be. And even in that, listen, he faced terrible tribulation. Look what he says down at verse number 9. He says, companion in tribulation. That must mean that the Christians of that day were going through terrible times of trouble, tribulation, persecution, trials. Now, if they're not immune from it, how many know we're not immune from it? He said, I'm your brother in it. I'm facing it right along with you. In the kingdom of the patience of Jesus Christ, he said, was in the isle that is called Patmos. Now, watch what he says. For the word of God, John was exiled to the island of Patmos, an island off the country of Turkey that's about six miles wide and about ten miles long. John was put there. It was a prison island, not because he had done something wrong, because he had done everything that was right. Matter of fact, he says it. He was there for the word of God. John just kept preaching Jesus, and the people didn't like it. John just kept sharing truth. And listen, the Roman emperor at that time, a man by the name of Domitian, put John there to shut him up so that he couldn't be heard of anymore. He says he was put there for preaching the word of God and for the testimony of the Lord Jesus. He was sharing the gospel so that men, women, boys, and girls might be saved. How many of you know that's what Jesus saved him to do? That's what Jesus called him to do. He was walking in lockstep with God's leadership in his life, was being obedient to what he had been saved to do, and still he faced tribulation. And folks, if John's not immune to it, we ain't either. No, I'm sorry. You look at the life of Jesus. Jesus did exactly what he was supposed to do according to the will of his heavenly Father, and they put him on a cross. Hey, you look at Paul. Paul was the foremost preacher of the gospel, wrote the majority of the New Testament. But listen, he ended up being beheaded simply because he was preaching the gospel. You look at Peter. Peter was crucified upside down because he chose to keep telling others about Jesus. And they kept telling him, Peter, if you'll just shut up, we'll leave you alone. And he said, I cannot help but tell you what I've seen and heard. Same thing with John. With all the other apostles. John is actually the only one that died of old age. 
All the other of the apostles, the original apostles, listen, they died a martyr's death except for Judas. We know Judas hung himself after he betrayed the Lord Jesus. But everyone else except for John died because they were preaching the gospel. So tribulation comes when we walk in disobedience. But I'm going to be honest with you. From time to time, tribulation, troubles, trials, persecutions even will come when we are walking in obedience. Jesus said as much. He said, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Not because of who you are, because of who I am. See, we receive persecution from this world, folks. Not because of, necessarily because of who we are, but because of whose we are. And that makes all the difference. When you are walking in the light as he is in the light, the darkness hates the light. Because listen to me now, light always dispels darkness. It exposes darkness for what it is. We are called to be salt and light in this world as believers. And as long as we live in the power of the Holy Spirit, walk in the light of the Lord Jesus Christ, the darkness will come against us. There will be times of trouble. There will be times of tribulation, even persecution. Do you realize that last year 90,000 Christians were martyred across the globe? Let that number seek in just a minute. Now, I know you're not going to hear about that on the liberal news media because they're in love with the religion of Islam. You're not going to see that on ABC, CBS, or NBC. But it's happening all over the world. Right now, in the Middle East, Christians are being killed just because they're standing for Christ. Right now, in Africa, Christians are being killed persecuted, listen, put in prison simply because they're standing for the Lord Jesus. It happens to believers in disobedience, yes, but also in obedience. But let me give you some good news. Do you know that even in times of tribulation, God can and will be glorified if we'll remain faithful? And I want to tell you, that's my ultimate goal. How about you? I want Jesus to be glorified in everything that happens in my life, whether I perceive it to be good or bad. And that is possible as long as we remain faithful to what we've been saved to be. Amen. I'm telling you. It's the, the, the proof is right here on the pages of Scripture. How do you understand? John went through terrible persecution. He was exiled to the Isle of Patmos. And I want you to understand, to be on that island was not for him. It was not a, a pleasure cruise. It was not a, a time for him to go out and lay up on the beach. That's not at all what it was. I want to read to you something that Dr. David Jeremiah wrote in his book, Escape the Coming Night. Um, it's a story of a man by the name of Alexander Solinsky. He was a Russian prisoner um, who, had, uh, who had been imprisoned and had also been exiled. Listen to what it says. Alexander Solinsky, who knew both the terror of imprisonment and humiliation of exile, wrote, uh, Need it be said that exile is a breaking point in your life, a bolt of lightning which has scored a, a direct hit on you. It is a spiritual earthquake which not every person can cope with. As a result, many people slip into insanity. It drives them crazy. I want you to imagine what happened. To be exiled in that day meant that John was first of all beaten within an inch of his life. 
He was beaten, um, scourged by a lector. A lector is a Roman soldier who was trained in the art of torture. And so he beat John before they ever took him to the island. They stripped him down to little to no clothes, put him on the island full of prisoners, very dangerous men, and gave him no provision. Now let me tell you what happened before he went to the island. I'm just going to... Let me say this. You can take this or leave this, but I'm going to share it with you because I think it's important. It's not in the Word of God, but it is on the pages of history. A man by the name of Tertullian, a Roman historian that lived around the same time that John the Apostle lived, um, wrote that John was actually boiled in oil in the Colosseum by the Roman Emperor Domitian before they took him to the Isle of Patmos. Now again... That's not on the pages of Scripture. Well, we don't know that, but it is written in the history books according to Tertullian. Now listen to me. I want you to get this. He was being boiled in oil according to what uh, the Roman historians uh, said. And when they put him in the oil, the oil didn't kill him. He was put in the boiling cauldron, and when he got in there, he just kept preaching the Word of God. And many there that day in the Colosseum believed on Jesus because of the miracle that just happened. Now then, again, you can take that or leave it, but it is written down by men who was a a historian around that time. I will say this. If I was Domitian, a Roman emperor who hated Christianity, I certainly would not want John around who had just been boiled in oil while preaching the gospel, surviving, and everybody else listening to how God had brought him through. Amen? You say, well, brother, why wouldn't he just kill him? If I was Domitian and a man had just survived being boiled in oil by the power of God, I'd be scared to death to kill him. Either way, I want you to know John went through severe tribulation because of his obedience. But you know what? Even in the midst of this terrible tribulation that he went through, this terrible trouble, trial, and persecution that he went through, God was glorified because God gave us straight from John while on the Isle of Patmos in exile, the book of Revelation that gives us insight into what's going to happen when Jesus returns to this earth to set back right what sin set wrong. Can you say amen to that? So in the midst of tribulation, God did a fantastic work. He did it in John's life. He did it in Paul's life. Because of the tribulations of Paul, we have most of the New Testament. Because of the imprisonment of Paul, we have most of the New Testament. So I want you to know, God can take what seems to be bad and turn it for His good. We can trust in what the Bible speaks in Romans chapter 8. That listen, whether things look good or look bad, God can and will be glorified. Let's go over there and read that. Uh, Romans chapter 8. You can turn if you choose to. Romans chapter 8 and verse number 28. And we know that all things work together for the good of them that love God to them who are the called according to His purpose. Things we perceive to be good and things we perceive to be bad. God by His sovereign will can turn them around and glorify Himself. And that's the ultimate goal. Can you say amen to that? That's what we all want. That's what we should want. 
Not only do I want you to see the persecution of John, I want you to also see the power in which John wrote. Look at the 10th verse. Watch this. In verse number 10, it said, John said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. John said, I was in the Spirit when all of this took place. What does it mean to be in the Spirit? Well, he says that several times throughout the book of Revelation. He says it in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 2. In Revelation 4 and 2, we see John being called up in the Spirit to the throne room of God Himself. And he says, I was in the Spirit and saw what was happening in the throne room. He says it again in Revelation chapter 17 and verse 3, looking forward to what will take place in the great tribulation. He looks forward to see the future He says it again in Revelation 21.10, speaking of seeing the heavenly city, the holy city, New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven to this earth. John says he was in the spirit. So evidently, in the spirit means that John is now operating in the spiritual realm. Operating in the spiritual realm allows him to do things you can't do in the flesh. How do you know in the flesh we are hindered by space, time, and matter? Amen. All of us are because of this physical body that we have. But in the spirit realm, which John is now operating in, he can be transported to heaven. He can be transported to the future to see what is going to take place. So it was in the spirit. That's the power. That's the power that John wrote in. And then it says on the Lord's day. Now there's some differing opinion on this, what the Lord's day is. I'll tell you what I believe it was. I believe the Lord's Day means that John was at worship on Sunday. I believe it was the day of worship for John. See, just because he was on Patmos don't mean he quit worshiping. He was still faithful to worship Jesus because Jesus is still worthy of worship. Whether you're on the Isle of Patmos or you're pastoring in Ephesus. Amen. And so uh, I think it's just talking about um, the Lord's Day. Some say it's the day of the Lord that's spoken of in the book of Daniel and also throughout uh, a lot of the Word of God, Old and New Testament. Um, I, I don't think so. I think it means he was at a, worship, at a time of worship on Sunday um, when the Lord Jesus began to show him this great vision. So we first of all need to see the persecution uh, of John, the power in which John wrote. But I also want you to see the people that, uh, to whom John was to write. Look what it says in verse 11. Jesus said this, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. What thou seest, write it in a book. Write it down and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus and unto Smyrna and unto Pergamos and unto Thyatira and unto Sardis and unto Philadelphia and unto Laodicea. Now let me tell you something about the people John was writing to. Jesus was speaking through John to the church. How many of you know Jesus wants to speak to his church? I'm telling you, you'll see when we get in Revelation chapter 2, he continually says, he who hath ears to hear, let him hear. That means if you're ready to listen, Jesus is ready to speak. Now then, who's the church? What church is he speaking of? Well, first of all, he is speaking of seven literal churches that were in Asia Minor at that time. All of these were literal churches that John would have known about full well. See, he was not only the pastor of the church at Ephesus for a long time, he was also, when he was exiled, in a leadership position over several of the churches in the area. And so John would have known full well who he was speaking of. These were literal churches, but these churches are also symbolic of the complete church uh, throughout all the church age. Now you say, brother, what's the church age? Well, the church age 
It, it lasts from the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit of God came down and, and dwelled believers. That's when the church was born until the rapture. So right now, we are in the midst of the church age. That means that even today, we have um, some uh, Ephesus Christians, we have some Smyrna Christians, we have some uh, Pergamos Christians, we have some Thyatira Christians, we have some Sardis Christians, we have some Philadelphia, we have some Laodicea Christians, and we'll talk more about that when we get into the seven letters to the seven churches. But it's, not only is it seven literal churches of that day, but I think it speaks of the church as a whole. Another thing we need to see tonight before we go any further is that numbers count in the book of Revelation. I'm telling you. When you see the number seven, we know that seven is the perfect number, the number of completion. That's why I say that these seven churches that are spoken about here are representative of the complete church that goes throughout the church age. So not only is this real and relevant for those literal churches in that day, it's real and relevant for the church today. Can you say amen to that? That's the people in whom John is to write to. But then I want us to see, uh, folks, we can't miss this. The person of the Lord Jesus. Watch this now. It says in verse number, starting with verse number 10, John says, I was in the spirit of the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as a trumpet. The first thing I want you to see about the person of Jesus is voice. In verse number 10 it says, it was a voice as of a trumpet. Then if you look down um, to verse number 15, you're going to see it's a voice as a sound of many waters. Now what is he speaking of there? Well, I think it's talking about the power of the voice of Jesus. How many of you know when Jesus speaks, you better listen? Let me go a step further. When Jesus speaks, you're going to listen whether you want to or not. His voice is like that of a trumpet. It's spoken of in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 in the 16th verse when it says that when Jesus descends from heaven, he will come with the voice of an archangel and with a shout and a trumpet. Now what I believe he's saying there is that his voice in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 16 will be like a trumpet. It's going to be powerful and all will hear it. All children of God will. Amen? Listen, if you're a child of God, you ain't going to miss the voice of Jesus. It's powerful enough for you to hear it. For all of us to hear it. He says it's a voice as many waters. Take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 29. And I want you to share, share with you something that David says here. Psalm 29 and 4. He said, the voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. Well, that's the same thing John's speaking of when he says it's like a trumpet and a voice of many waters. My uh, grandfather and my uncle pretty much drove a truck all their life. And um, they have told me, both of them, time and time again, um, when my grandfather was still alive, he did, uh, about going up north to, uh, and they, would, they went up and seen Niagara Falls. Some of you may have already been there. I've never been to Niagara Falls. But they told me that when you're standing there and all that rushing mighty water is coming into one place, that you can almost feel the ground shake. It's like the earth is quaking beneath you because of the power of all that water rushing in. Well, that's the picture that John is painting. When Jesus speaks, it's earth shaking. I'll tell you this. 
on a smaller scale than what's talking about here in Revelation chapter 1. I can remember when the Holy Spirit of God began to speak to my heart. It was earth-shaking for me. I trembled in my boots when the Holy Spirit of God began showing me my sin. The voice of Jesus is a powerful voice. Not only do we need to see His voice, but we also want to see His clothes. In, in verse number 13, the Bible says it like this. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, it was one like unto the Son of Man. Well, that's the Lord Jesus. Clothed with a garment down to the foot and girt about the paps or his chest with a golden girdle. Now, it says that the Son of Man, Jesus, was walking in the middle of the seven golden candlesticks. Let me ask you, what is the seven golden candlesticks? What is the purpose of a candlestick? To hold a light. Absolutely. Listen, if you want light in a dark place, you've got to have a candlestick. Now, if you remember in John chapter 8 and verse number 12, Jesus said something like this. He said, I am the light of the world. Amen. Now then, but he goes on to tell us that when he leaves, then we will be the light of the world. We will then be light bearers for the Lord Jesus in this dark place. While he was here, he was the light. But now that he's gone by his power, the power of the Holy Spirit, by his life, the life of the Holy Spirit, we have now become the light in this dark place. So what are the seven golden candlesticks? I believe it's the seven churches. The light bearers in a dark world. Praise God, we ought to be the shining city set upon a hill right here in Hamilton, Alabama. Light bears so that everybody might see the way into the Lord Jesus. Amen? Amen. And so he says, he saw Jesus walking in the midst of his churches. That fires me up, but also scares me to death. It fires me up that I know Jesus is in the midst of his church. It fires me up because I know we can do nothing without him. But it fires me up because I know we can do all things through him. It fires me up that it's just further um, lets me know that he never leaves and never forsakes his people. He's in the midst. But now listen, it also scares me to death because Jesus is looking at everything that's happening in his church. You hear me? I think that's the picture that's being painted here. We'll see it uh, further when we get into chapter 2 and 3. In chapters 2 and 3, he starts talking to all these seven churches that's mentioned about the good things they do and the bad things they do. See, I think he's walking in the midst of these seven golden candlesticks, making, taking account of every good thing and every bad thing that's, go that's going on. Now, if he's doing in his church then... Don't you think he's doing it at his church today? Amen. Amen. Oh, folks, as your pastor, 
I want everything that happens right here at Mount Zion to be pleasing to Jesus. I'm talking about every message I preach, every lesson that's taught, every song that's sang, every program we perform, everything we do, I want it to be pleasing unto Him. Because guess what? I'm going to give an account. And even you will give somewhat of an account. As you pastor, I certainly will. Jesus is watching. I want him to be pleased, don't you? Whew. He's walking in the midst of the seven. Look at his clothes. There's two aspects of his clothes we need to see. First of all, his long uh, robe that he's wearing. Clothed with a garment down to the foot. Now then, that's king's clothes. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 6, uh, you're going to see a vision of Isaiah in the throne, that, that, or excuse me, a vision of the throne room of God that God gives to Isaiah. And in the vision, it says that his train or his robe filled the temple. Amen. It's the kingly robes. But then he says something else. Not only does he have a robe down to the foot, but he's also got a girdle around his chest that's pure gold. That girdle around the chest speaks of his righteousness. In Isaiah chapter 11 and verse number 15, I want to go over there and read that one to you. I think this is pretty awesome. Isaiah 11, verse 15. The Bible says it like this. And the Lord shall utterly destroy the tongue of the Egyptian sea with his mighty wind. Shall he shake his hand over the river and shall smile in the seven streams and make men over a dry shod. Let's go down to verse number five. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. So what are we seeing here? We're seeing the picture of the King of kings and Lord of lords who is righteous in all his ways. Amen? He's got the long robe. He's got the golden girdle. Now I want to share something with you folks. Jesus is not coming when he comes at the end times. He's not coming as the suffering servant. He's coming as the king of kings and lord of lords. He's coming as the righteous king of the universe. That's something we need to get a hold of. Something we must get a hold of. If there's ever been a reason for us to share the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus, it's that. He's not coming as the suffering servant. He's coming as the lion of the tribe of Judah, Judah the righteous king of kings. Not only do you see his clothes, we also need to see his hair. Watch what it says in verse 14. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. I love what Dr. David Jeremiah says concerning um, the, his hair being white as snow. He says this speaks of holiness. The British judges for years and maybe still today wore the white powdered wigs. This symbolized the purity of judgment. Have you ever saw that? That made sense to me when I read it. Uh, maybe on old movies or old pictures you see them in those white powder. I always wondered why do they do that? That is a symbol of righteous judgment. Of holiness. Of being right in all you do. So when the Bible says that Jesus, his hair was white like wool, it means that he's holy. We are called as the people of God to be holy just as he is holy. Look at his eyes. Down at verse number um, 
14, the last part of that verse. And his eyes were as a flame of fire. How do you know that fire penetrates? Fire purifies and fire penetrates. I don't care what you have. If you leave it in the fire long enough, it will penetrate it. Now what's that mean about Jesus? Well, I believe it means this. I believe it means that he can see into the deepest, darkest recesses of our soul. Friends, brothers and sisters, let me share something with you. I can hide from you, and you can hide from me, but nobody can hide from Jesus. His eyes, the flames of fire, penetrates to our deepest, darkest thoughts, our deepest, darkest secrets, our deepest, darkest feelings. We need to see his feet. Look down at verse 15. And his feet like unto fine brass. Anytime you see fine brass in the word of God, it's speaking of judgment. How many of you understand that the Jesus who once brought the gospel will come again and be the judge of those who reject the gospel? And the Bible says his feet were like brass. Let me tell you what I think that means. That means that he will stomp on his enemies in judgment. Again, if there's ever been a need for us to preach the gospel to all who hear it, I think this shows us that great need. How about you? They will one day face the judgment of the Lord Jesus. Then we need to see also his hands. Look what it says in verse 16. And he had in his right hand seven stars. Anytime you see the right hand of God, he's speaking of, of, of authority. How do you know Jesus has complete authority? The, the Bible told us, if you remember in the book of John, um, chapter number 11, that Jesus has complete authority over all things. He's now seated at the right hand of God, meaning he is seated at the place of authority. But now it says the one who has all authority holds in his right hand the place of authority, the hand of authority, seven stars. He said, well, brothers, what's the seven stars? Well, look down at verse 20. He explains it. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Who are the angels of the seven churches? Now, there's a lot of debate over this, too. Let me tell you what I believe. The word angel right here in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 20 is the same Greek word that is translated messenger. Now then, who are the messengers under the seven churches? I believe it to be the pastors of the seven churches. Listen to what J. Vernon McGee said. He says, I choose to believe this to be the pastors of the seven churches because more often than not, pastors are called much more than angels. <laughs> I thought that was funny. Y'all didn't have to laugh. Y'all get that on the way home. Y'all get There you go. Laugh when you get home. So I do believe that your pastor is to be the messenger to the church. The under-shepherd under the great shepherd. Amen? 
And as Jesus leads the church, and as Jesus leads your pastor, then you ought to follow your pastor. Now what happens if your pastor's not following Jesus? Get you another pastor. Quit following. How do you know if your pastor's following Jesus? According to Scripture. According to the Word of God. Are you hearing what I'm saying? And so he says... Um, He's got authority over who he puts in his church as messenger. I don't need to see his hands. We also have to see his face. Look what it says in verse 17. And when I saw him, John saw him, he said, I fell at his feet as dead. How many of you, ever, maybe you've said this because I've said it before. I, I thought, man, when I get to heaven, I, I've got a whole list of questions I'm going to ask Jesus. I'm, I'm going to ask Jesus um, wore a, wore a, um, uh, if Adam and Eve had any belly buttons, because I've been asked yet. Did Adam and Eve have belly I'm going to ask you when I get there. I thought that. I'm going to ask Jesus, um, where did Cain's wife come from? You know, because I've been asked that. I'm going to ask Jesus if, if, there, if he could make a rock so big he couldn't pick it up. You know all that silly stuff sometimes we, we think about? I believe when we see Jesus, will probably be just like John. John was so amazed at the sight of the glorified Christ. The Bible says he fell down like he is dead. He couldn't stand it. You got to remember something though. This is the same John whom the Bible says many times, Jesus loved. It's the same John who leaned on the breast of Jesus at the Last Supper. This is the same John who went up on the Mount of Transfiguration and saw the Lord transfigured before his eyes. This is the same John who stood at the foot of the cross. What I'm trying to tell you is, if anybody had a special relationship with Jesus, it was John. Yet when he saw him as the glorified Christ, he couldn't handle it. And he fell down, fearful. What is the song that um, Mercy Me sings? I can only imagine. There's a lot of truth to that. What's it going to be like when we stand before the post-incarnate glorified Jesus. Something to think about, isn't it? Now watch this, though. This is the good part. Verse 17. And he laid his right hand upon me, the hand of authority. And he said, fear not. See, John didn't have to fear because John knew this Jesus. John was no longer under condemnation. John was no longer separated from Christ. John was a part of the body of Christ because of faith in Jesus. Amen? As the Lord laid his hand on him and said, Fear not. I want to show you something. Folks, if you know Jesus, you don't have to fear him. Now, I respect him. I reverence him. 
but I don't have to fear his wrath anymore. Amen? He took the wrath that I deserved at the cross. And when I placed my faith in Jesus, now I no longer have to fear. John didn't either. And the Lord said, fear not. He said, I am the first and the last. I want you to see what's said about him. Or, or what Jesus says about himself. He said, I'm the first and the last. If you remember last week in verse 8, he says, I'm Alpha and Omega. And then in verse 11, he says it again. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Alpha is the first letter in the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter in the Greek alphabet. That means he's the beginning, he is the end, but one great writer's put it like this. He's also everything in the middle. It's all about him. Look with me in the book of Colossians just a moment. Colossians chapter 1. In verse number 15, the Bible says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. Watch what it says, verse 16. For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible. That means Jesus being at one with the Father, everything was created by him. Amen. He is the beginning and the end. Amen. He started it. He has sustained it, and he will finish it when he gets ready. Everything made by him in the earth, visible and invisible. Whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him. Watch this now. And for him. That means every throne that has power, in every government that has power in this world, every king, every president that has power in this world, it was for him. Fulfilling his sovereign will and plan. You say, brothers, explain that. I can't. Maybe you can't. But I do know he is in complete control of everything according to Scripture. Watch what else. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Now, let, let, me, let me ask you this. Did Jesus just become... The Son of God and God the Son when He was born in a manger in Bethlehem? No. He was the Son of God and God the Son long before Adam ever dwelled in Eden. He will be the Son of God and God the Son in the ages to come, in 10,000 billion trillion years as we're living in eternity with him as the children of God, he'll still be the son of God and God the son. He's Alpha and Omega. First and last. Daniel said he's the ancient of days. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 9, he again speaks of his white hair and calls him the ancient of days. I like that. Folks, the picture that is being painted in Revelation chapter 1 is not a needy, weak, lily-livered Jesus who just has to have us on his team, is it? And I fear that's how he's being portrayed mostly today. He is the sovereign, all-powerful, 
holy, righteous, King of kings and Lord of lords. I am so thankful he loves me. I'm so thankful by his grace I've been saved. Have you got anything else?